Good evening. Uh, today is May 26th, 2021, and we are studying the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. This week's chapter is How It Works, and our speaker tonight is Melissa C. Thank you, Melissa. Over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for this meeting on a great Wednesday night. Um, my name is Melissa Sam, a recovered compulsive overeater. It's nice to be here with you all. Um, okay, so made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And um, on page 64, it says, though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. So, you know, um, this was like mind blowing to me because I really believed that food and weight was my problem. And to be told that it's a symptom of a greater problem, I didn't understand it for a long time, you know, which was why, um, Diets didn't work and neither did abstinence because if my only problem was my weight and my food issue, then getting abstinent would have solved every single problem. And actually what I found was that um, the great illness was the things that were inside of me, not outside of me, right? And it wasn't my weight. It was like something, you know, much bigger than my weight. So that excuse of everything being a weight problem, um, you know, was no longer a viable, a reasonable excuse for me. Um, and really what I had to look at was there were causes and conditions that kept me needing to soothe with the food. Like the food was what I used to deal with the greater aspect of my problem. Um, you know, in, in the, I really like the AA 12 and 12. Um, I think I love how it like really gives like, um, like an essay more or less for the steps. And so in the AA 12 and 12, it talks about having complete willingness to take inventory and exert ourselves to do the job thoroughly. And just from doing that, like a wonderful light falls upon the foggy scene. And as we persist, a brand new kind of confidence is born and the sense of relief at finally facing ourselves is indescribable. These are the first fruits of step four. You know, and it's funny because, so here it's saying that we're gonna get uplifted just with the thought of exerting ourselves and seeing ourselves honestly. And yet um, many of us have been terrified of taking the fourth step, like, like as if it's, you know, a monster that we're gonna be giving birth to. And what I think is um, really important to note when you're, in, when you're embarking on an inventory is you're seeing what already exists. You're not conjuring up something that isn't already present. And so there's a great relief at finally seeing what these things are that are keeping you, know, keeping you blocked and, and therefore in bondage to the food. You know, what, um, and, and I remember like, you know, it says really that we have this huge sigh of relief. And I remember feeling that like, oh, this is why I always used food. Like now I get it. You know, and I remember thinking like, no wonder why I ate compulsively. 
it was really hard. Life was, life was not fun, you know, but um, the text really makes it clear that the drinking or eating did not cause the defects. And sometimes we hear people saying, oh my gosh, when I was in the food, I was a lunatic. Or when I was in the food, I was so selfish. Or as I was in the food, I was so afraid of everything. And that's not really, that's not really accurate right? Because for me, when I was in the food, I was numb. It numbed me. And what happened was I put the food down and it was like, I woke a sleeping giant, right? I woke up this thing. Um, And what was blocking me, I found it was inside of me. It wasn't external. It wasn't, you know, um, the food did not create the selfishness. The selfishness caused me to eat. That's what it was. The food did not create the fear. The fear caused me to use the food because I had no other skill. I had no other coping mechanism. Um, In fact, looking back now, I I like actually say, I'm really grateful that I had the food because I had to walk through some really hard times and I didn't have anything else. I didn't have another way. And so I don't regret ever using the food. In fact, it allowed me to survive. And I think about, you know, there's a part in the big book in Bill's story where he talks about um, seeing, you know, when the stock market crashed. And I know it's not in this chapter, but it's important for me. You know, there was a part where we're like all hell busted loose on the stock market, right? And he's watching people jump to their death. And he's saying, oh, you know, not me, not me. And what does he do? He goes back to the bar and drinks. And you know, frankly, I'm glad that he had a bar to go to because if he didn't have a bar to go to, he might've jumped, right? And then where would we be? And I think that was my experience. If I did not have the food to lean on, I might've I might have killed myself. I might've, you know, I don't know what I would have done. Um, you know, so food was the substance that I used to tolerate the pain of living. And the problem is <laughs> it didn't work for long. It failed at some point. The amount, because the disease is progressive, the amount that it took me to get high off the food, just I couldn't consume enough. And then it wasn't even like I got high off the food. It was like just enough to get me to zero, just enough to get me a little numb. I couldn't take in enough food. I actually couldn't physically consume enough to get me to that spot. And, um, you know, I reached a point where it just stopped working and even still I couldn't stop, right? And so, you know, then the big book talks about resentment and I really wanna drill down on this. It says it's the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else from it stems all spiritual disease, right? So all my spiritual diseases, all, and if I think about my spiritual, What does that mean to have a spiritual disease? It means a a sense of not living in agreement with how I'm supposed to live as a human being. Human beings, you know, are, we're social creatures. We're not tigers, right? We don't live in isolation. We're not snakes. We're not spiders. We're actually meant to live in community, right? Um, And my spiritual sickness kept me from the ability to connect with people in my life because I was so filled with resentment, um, real or imagined, 
you know, real or imagined, I was re-experiencing things. You know, so it says in dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. And we asked ourselves why we were angry. <clears throat> you know, in most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relations, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore, we were burned up. You know, so when we ask why we're angry, it's not to assign blame. Like that's how far I got in the past, right? First go around, we do this like many of us, right? The first time we do these, we kind of set it all down on paper. And then I found everybody that screwed me. And with that, like, it was like, oh, well now I've got justified reason to resent them or to resent these circumstances. But that's not what we're supposed to look at. We're actually supposed to put that out of our minds and find where we were affected, where it was, what, what's our part here? You know, and um, I found out, first of all, I'm extraordinarily sensitive. That's one of my defects. I take everything that happens in the world as though it was, I'm the center, I'm the target, right? It's all at me. And so the first, you know, you look at the inventory and you're like, well, these people did all these things to me. And then I have to remember whose inventory is it? not taking anyone else's inventory, it's my inventory, you know? And so, yeah, so the first thing that's apparent, page 66, is that the world and its people were often quite wrong, right? Yep. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us, and so we stayed sore, right? Sometimes it's remorse, and then we're sore in ourselves, but the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. So it says that it's plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness to the precise extent that we permit these. So now it's like, I actually have a choice. Am I going to permit this or not? Am I going to stay attached to the resentment? Right? It doesn't say that they didn't do anything wrong. That's not the point. That's irrelevant. Irrelevant. Am I going to stay attached to it? That's my decision. Um, and if I choose to, I'm going to squander the hours, right? I'm going to waste my precious time that might've been worthwhile, right? So, and then it says, you know, but with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. So it's going to kill me. And I had evidence of that. I was over 300 pounds, right? I mean, I only need to look at my dangerously high blood pressure, all the physical consequences of living in morbid obesity, and, and my last, you know, my mental state at the end, I really, sometimes I just thought I would drive my car off the road. Like I just thought, maybe I'll just, what would happen if, you know, and it didn't even seem that awful a thing to start entertaining, right? So I can't live with resentment because that's where it will lead me. You know, um, we found that it's fatal. 
This is fatal for when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again and to drink is to die. You know, if we're to live, we have to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. And that's a phrase I turn to a lot, that idea of dubious luxury of normal men, because it reminds me that as an ex-problem eater, I have a very unique set of directions. I am not like other people. I cannot live the same way that normal people can. Um, I can't defend and support my side and my position. As soon as I am creating the argument in my head why I'm right, I am in serious trouble. I actually have to learn to detach from that. And that this is where I learned it. This is really where I learned it. In fact, I actually have to divorce myself from that kind of thinking. I remember thinking, you know, at one time I thought, oh, getting recovery meant that I was going to get my voice. I was going to be able to defend my perspective and no longer be pushed around. That's because I had this idea that I was being pushed around by everybody and, um, and, and I was going to get recovered. And now I was going to let you know, you can't push me around anymore. You know, what I found out was, first of all, no one was really pushing me around. <laughs> that was all in my head. And at any point in time, I don't have to fight it. I can just simply turn the other way. There's nothing weak about walking away from an argument. In fact, it's stronger. It is actually stronger when people want to fight. You know, when there's the tug of war and they're tugging and you're like, I'm going to tug and I'm going to pull. The, the strongest, most powerful thing I can do is just put the rope down and walk away. And this is where I learned it. I'm not tugging a rope. My life is too precious. I have too many important things to do than to be attached to any resentment I felt any of it. Um, you know, today I seek peace at all cost, and it often requires more discipline than putting down the food. And it also means that it's okay if I appear weak, right? It's, it's, it's okay because what other people think of me, well, I'm not owned by that anymore. It's not my business, first of all. And the other thing is, who's even thinking about me all that much, right? <laughs> it's only in my brain that I think, you know, like in my building, right? We've got like, uh, I work, you know, where I work, there's a union and everybody's lots of good reasons, by the way, real or imagined, sometimes they're real, justifiable, you betcha. I'm not assigned, God, I, you know, my creator, I believe, gave different people strengths and weaknesses and for me, I was not assigned the role of fighter. It's not for me. Because if I do it, I die, right? So it's best left in the hands of someone else. Now, if they're an addict, that's their business. And if they're not, that's their business. But I know I can't engage. And so it also means that, you know, um, you know, it's okay if people in my building have an opinion of me. If they think, you know, someone one time came to my room to complain about something or to get me, you know, kind of 
riled up with the masses. And I just, um, I kind of nodded and said, yeah, mm, mm, mm -hmm." and she went, you're the most positive person I've ever met. And it was an insult. How's that? (laughs) That was an insult. Um, That's okay. It's okay. You know, it's okay. Um, Because I have a spiritual sickness. I have a disease, a dis-ease, an uneasiness with reality as it was. People were not behaving according to my master plan. Life was not unfolding precisely the way I was certain it should be unfolding. And by the way, I'm 100% right. I'm gonna tell you right now. There's no, I know that I'm right in all of these things and all of the things that people do, you betcha, right? And not only that, I guarantee that I can, I know just who to survey to agree with me. If I want to, I know exactly who to call for each and every issue so that I can stay married and attached to being right. And I can't do that, right? Cannot do that. You know, I've come to know that I'm in the greatest danger of the spiritual malady. And remember, that's a separation between me and other people when I'm right. Being right has not given me peace and happiness that is necessary for me to be free. Right? So what do we do? We cross-examine ourselves. We look closely and critically at ourselves. You know, in the AA 12 and 12, it says, if my disturbance was seemingly caused by the behavior of others, why do I lack the ability to accept conditions I cannot change? Why why is that? And again, I can't base my happiness on the actions of others, right? If I put other people in charge of my happiness, I am never going to get peace. I will never, because that means that they're my master, that other people will be my God, right? You know, um, if I'm unable to, and here it says in the AA 12 and 12, if I'm unable to change the present state of affairs, am I willing to take the measures necessary to reshape my life to the conditions as they are, right? Can I just kind of work around it. I say like, I'm gonna do the work around. I'm gonna MacGyver it, whatever the problem is. I'm gonna do the work around. If it looks like, if it looks crazy to other people, it's okay. It's okay, right? You know, so then how do we do that? Well, we turn back to the list for it held the key to the future. We're prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. Think about that. People are dominating us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than the alcohol. And this was the course we realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. So when there's things that are, that I can't seem to let go of, that's where I turn to prayer. Whatever your prayer practice is, you know, I say I'm someone who came here because I needed a miracle. I was a woman 
who required an intervention. I needed some power to step in between me and the food. And I still need some power to step in between me and my resentments. And so I petitioned that power to help me master my resentments. You know, I, I, I have a lot of prayers that I, that I say to try to um, connect, right? To try to detach from the situation and the outcome and try to connect to something greater that allows me to detach from the outcome. And I have to tell you that practicing that prayer and meditation has been a game changer for me. It has given me far more peace than I ever got in getting my way or rallying my troops or hanging on to my position. You know, there's a whole thing that I was going to go into about fear because there's a lot to say about fear. And I know that my time is, is, is done. So I'm going to just quickly say, I used to think that I was entitled to be afraid based on the, the problems that occurred in my life. I would even say, if you had what happened to you happen to me, you'd be afraid too. I'm entitled to be afraid. And the truth is, no, we're entitled to better. We're entitled to better than being afraid. And so um, the real answer is acceptance, right? Acceptance is the answer to all of my problems today. And with that, I'll pass. Yay, thank you, Melissa. That was amazing. Ah, oh, wonderful. Okay, we will now open the meeting for questions or for three minute shares. As this is a big book study, sharing and questions should relate specifically to the chapter in the step being studied this week. We ask you to accept this guideline in order to keep the meeting on track. If you'd like to share or ask a question, please raise your virtual hand, which is under reactions or star nine if you're on the phone. And uh, the Zoom host will call the raised hands in order. Would the timekeeper please set a timer for three minutes for each share and announce when the time is up? So let's let's go. Who's first? Well, there's Amy B. Go ahead. Hi, thank you, Team Wednesday. Thank you so much for doing service. Thank you, everybody doing service. And thank you, Melissa, for coming and sharing tonight on step four. I actually have a question. Um, we, you know, we've been hearing about step four all week, and I was just wondering your perception on how you work step four, either like in your own step tens or also with sponsees. The things that come up in under fear in the column four, in the, in the nature of my wrongs, the things that come up under fear, do you like always Work, then like work a fear inventory on those things? Would you, when do you make a determination? Is there ever a, uh, like, are those things connected in the process for you? Thank you. So are you like referring to like a step 10? Like if stuff is coming up? Yeah, I mean, well, I guess both. I guess both like in a step 10 as you're maintaining, which follows like the step four ideas or when you're instructing somebody on step four, a sponsee, do you tell them to look to their 
column four on resentments for their step fear forms, I guess. I think it depends on, on, you know, there's some like pat, like we really want to look for patterns, right. To help us determine how much deep, deeper we go, because it's the same, you know, like when I say, especially when sponsoring someone, it's always easiest to, but I can see it now with myself. We have some stories, these like age old stories. They, you know, I say that they go back way back, probably to like when we're little, right? The same story over and over and over again. I just keep casting and new people in different roles, right? But it's the same theme. It's the same, same, and it's generally same, same fear, same, whatever it is, you know? Um, yeah. So when I see a pattern, right, we've got to do like a real, like a fear, a real fear inventory of it. And most of it is, um, you know, with, with the fear, it comes down to like not living in the day, not being present today. It's catastrophizing. It's future, it's future tripping. It's, you know, it's very rarely are my fears right this second fear, like exactly right now fear. It's always futuristic thinking, right? Yeah. Thank you, Amy, for the question and Melissa for the answer. Is anybody else wanting to ask a question while the recording's still happening? Going once, going twice. Well, there are no hands up, so I'm going to take a page out of my fellow's book and ask Melissa, can you spend the next three minutes talking about what you were going to talk about around fear? Okay, awesome. Yeah, I will. So, um, okay. So with fear, you know, we're, um, the short word somehow touches every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing it seemed to cause more trouble, right? And, um, you know, I think like my own, my own fear, um, it's a scary world when you believe that you're in charge, right? It's when you believe that you're God, right? I say it's like, I'm a dog person. So um, for me, it's like when I think I'm alpha, I'm the dog, right? I'm the head dog of the pack. And I've had dogs my whole life, right? And I've had dogs that are confused about who's the boss, right? Who's the dominant one here? And those dogs are really, they're, they're really hard to live with. They're afraid because it's too much responsibility. So they bite, right? That was me. And lashing out. They're possessive of their stuff, right? Their food, right? They're food aggressive or whatever it is. They feel like they have to protect everything because they're, they're so scared that they're there. It's too much responsibility. You know, they bite, they growl. 
they do all sorts of things. And I actually had a dog who um, was so fearful, he bit everybody except for me. He liked me, he thought he was in charge of protecting me. He bit everybody. And when I went away, he almost chewed his tail off. Like he literally chewed his tail off. It was like a thread. And the dog, you know, then had to walk around with those, one of those ridiculous cones, right? Okay, that was me. I'm that dog. Except I wasn't, you know, I wasn't wearing a cone. I was wearing 300 pounds. That's what it looks like when you think, you know, when fear is controlling your life. And what made me afraid was I thought I was in charge. I thought it was up to me to keep me safe, to keep things right. You know, I had a master view of the world and it was up to me to make sure everything stayed there. And step three, right? Step, it's so important that we do the steps in sequence. Step three was like, oh, wait a second. I'm not gonna be the head dog anymore. I'm, I'm not the alpha, right? It says that. I'm not the alpha. Let someone else be the alpha. Okay, wait a second. What do I do with all these fears now? Who am I gonna give them to? I'm gonna give them to the alpha, whatever your alpha is. And, you know, and it was the great, for me, it was the great reality that what was going to happen, I got this sudden awareness and I get it every now and then when I do like a really good meditation. Whatever it is, it's gonna be okay. Whatever it is, you know, I'm going to survive it until I no longer survive it, right? Whatever it is, and my experience has been that no matter what difficult times have befallen me, and like us all, we've had hard times, I've never been left without the resources needed to muscle to get through, right? Because here I am. So obviously something worked. Even go back to Bill, who said, I'm not jumping, and he went back to the bar. Even the food. One time was what I needed to get me through. I don't need it anymore, right? I don't need it anymore. And now I have a fellowship. Now I have human connection. And that's really what I found. God never left me alone. Never, ever left me alone. And now the beautiful thing is I have a purpose, you know? I, I, I just want to share with this. I've been having a lot of fear concerning my daughter. She's 20 and... Uh, you know, difficult stuff. And in my meditation this morning, it was like, just love her. Just love her. Don't, you're not going to fix her. Her future is her future. You messed up, she'll mess up. It's okay. Just love her right now. And I actually crawled into bed with her the other morning, just crawled into bed with her and kissed her. Didn't talk to her about getting a job. Didn't talk to her about getting her crap, nothing. Just kissed her and loved her. And we actually spent the day together and we wound up speaking to a woman who just lost her 20 year old daughter. My daughter's 20. And it was like, right, I'm not supposed to be afraid of my daughter's future. I'm supposed to love her right this second. To another mother, it might look like I'm being weak. I'm not laying down the law. I'm not like putting down that hammer and whipping her butt into shape. I don't know, I just wanna live in peace. I just wanna let go of the fear. Life will teach her the consequences. I don't think I wanna do it. 
I just think I want to love her today. Thanks. I'm going to pass with that. Thank you so much, Melissa. Okay, we have two hands up. Emily, go ahead. Thanks, Wendy. Oh, man. I'm uh, Emily, recovered compulsive overeater in Chicago and grateful, just grateful to be here and to hear um, about how it works because it does work. And I had a light bulb moment while you were talking. So this is the preamble to the question that I have. Um, when you said, if I appear weak, that's okay. I filled in the rest of it because I need to stay abstinent. Like I have that, that's like it, that's it. And that to me was like, oh, right. So here's the question. I'm working um, with a sponsee right now who's a real crusader uh, for all sorts of, you know, things that are important to her. And I relate, I am, I, I am too, but I've realized lately, I've let a lot of things go where I was the front man. And I didn't even put it together that that was God working in my life to be one among many, to be a part of a team, to be humble. So it's all kind of clicking for me tonight, Melissa. But the, the question I have is how do we help? How do we sort of, I know the big book also says like, we're not servile. I often refer to that in my brain and in my heart when I'm thinking about like, how do I stand up for myself and have a voice? Because a lot of us, I think, lost that sometimes. And how do we do that, but also not fight? Like, how do you do, how do you walk the line? Like crossing on the wrong side and, and you know, it's like, yeah, I oversteer and I have to dial it back. Um, you know, I've had a, a situation at work with a colleague who, um, she actually yelled at me like one time, like in the hall, like she was mad at me. And I have really refrained from fighting with her. Um, but she doesn't like the expression I get on my face when I'm not fighting with her. How's that? She said, I get a patronizing expression. She's like, she's like, even the way you're smiling right now. Like, <laughs> um, and I, act, I mean, so what do I do? You know, you may not speak to me. You may not speak to me like that. That's really how I say it. And I've even like, I've done it with like, with people like, I'm, excuse me, excuse me. You can't speak to me like that. That's it, right? Um, and what, do you, what are you gonna say to that? You know, like, like, I mean, she said, well, that's just the way I talk. And I said, uh-huh, okay, then I'm gonna walk away. I'm not, I'm nobody's punching bag, right? So, and I think, you know, sometimes what becomes unclear for us is on social issues, right? Issues of social justice, issues of, you know, when you see like great injustices of the world, that's where we ask God, right? Mold my ideals and help me to live up to them. And I'll tell you one thing that I learned. Um, fighting on Facebook is never gonna, it creates social change. So if that's where you're, that's where you're engaging to, to rally social justice, you're in the wrong spot. And that's how I realized, right? There's other things I can do. There's actions I can take. Yeah. So. Thank you, Melissa. All right, we will now stop the recording uh, for unrecorded questions and 